But what I, I think about critical hope metaphorically to some extent, which is as like a dance or a relationship or like a wrestling match between these two lies that we've been sold that have to be separate. And I've, I've been really interested lately in how many parts of ourselves coexist in the same space and how we hold space for those different parts to have a relationship with one another. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, we're discussing critical hope. This notion keeps coming up for student affairs professionals in equity work, countering toxic positivity, and helping us engage in the many challenges that we're facing with agency. Uh, I'm so honored to have two scholars and practitioners here to help us explore critical hope today. I'm really excited about this conversation. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Simplicity. A true partner, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach. You can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm broadcasting from Minneapolis, Minnesota at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. Let's get to the conversation and let's meet our guests for today. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves and uh, Carrie, we're gonna start with you. Okay, great to be here. Thank you for having me. My name is Dr. Kari Grain, and I am here on the traditional ancestral and unceded territories of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam peoples. Um, yeah, and and I I feel grateful to be here for a number of reasons, but I just want to put it up front that Jeffrey, uh, who is the other person we're chatting with today, he was actually my first entry point. Reading his work was my first entry point when I was a master's student to thinking about the role of hope in education and, and to thinking more deeply about it. So um, I'm, I'm slightly intimidated, but I'm also really excited about, uh, about being here. Um, but as for what I do, I am now a faculty member at UBC, the University of British Columbia. And um, I run the master's in adult learning and global change. And I also am a research associate in Vancouver's downtown east side with the Simon Fraser University Community Engaged Research Initiative. So I have, uh, I wear a few hats here in Vancouver and um, yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. And and like you, uh, Jeff's article um, was, was my entry point as well. So we're both delighted to have you here, Jeff. Tell folks a little bit more about you. Greetings everybody. Um, thank you for inviting me to um, participate in, in this discussion. Um, I uh, am currently in my home in, in East Oakland, California, um, which is a lonely land. Um, I'm a professor of uh, Latino and Latina studies at San Francisco State University um, in the College of Ethnic Studies, which is the original College of Ethnic Studies um, in, in the United States. Um, I'm a father to uh, twin boys, Amaru and Tayari, um, who will not bust in on this podcast because they're at school. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I started um, 
thinking about and talking about um, hope, uh, I think intuitively as a longtime um, high school teacher in, in East Oakland, um, and um, as I got more and more uh, disappointed in the research that was coming out of the field of education, um, that really turned me toward uh, other fields like social epidemiology, public health, neuroscience, um, physiology, and um, and it was there that I found um, Charles Schneider's work on um, the um, children's hope scale, um, and and so you know here we are, and it's so amazing to think that that piece uh, that I wrote several years ago um, has had such an important impact on, on so many people. And so I love to come and hear how people have advanced the work. And so I really appreciate Kari that you've, um, that you've moved it forward and taken it past the, you know, some of the initial things that I was thinking about. And I'm excited to be in a conversation with, with both of you about um, how, how hope is um, uh, made you more hopeful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, well, let's define critical hope, because I think that can be kind of a fancy word, or for folks who just think about hope, uh, what, what does that mean? So I'd love to hear from both of you uh, a little bit about what critical hope is and, and what it isn't. Um, so Jeff, maybe you can start us off. Sure. Well, um, when I was writing that uh, the article, Note to Educators, Hope Required When Growing Roses in Concrete, um, I started to, because I, that term, I think that the concept of hope is, is slippery, um, particularly in the context where, um, where I've done a, a lot of my work, um, because um, I think that, you know, you called it toxic positivity. Um, I think there's a way in which um, a lot of adults that are working in, um, communities that where there's a, a lot of vulnerable and wounded children um, or, or young people, you know, generally, mm -hmm. um, that there's a tendency to um, duck, dodge, and deny the, mm -hmm. the reality of the material conditions of, of their lives. Um, and so they, they want to be hopeful <laughs> about the project of working with um, our communities. And in, in so doing, um, they often uh, promote and, and produce um, the things that I talk about in the article as forms of false hope. Um, and those, um, those are also toxic, right? And they, they undermine the prospect of, of the, the core elements that actually lead to hope. And, and I was most interested in, in hope um, as distinguished, this distinction that Cornell West makes between hope and optimism, <laughs> right? And, and Cornell West says that um, as a black man in the United States, I've I've never had an optimistic day in my life, but I am imminently hopeful. Mm -hmm. And the distinction that he draws is he says optimism is when you look at the existing conditions and circumstances, and based on your evaluation of those things you believe that things will get better. And, um, but hope is when you look at the existing um, material conditions um, and you believe that things will get better anyway. Mm -hmm. And um, 
And so for me, like that's critical hope, right? That there's, you're not ducking, dodging, or denying what's true and what's real, that you're you're staring it in the face. Um, and and you're using what sociologists refer to as the critical lens, right? Which is that you're um you're directly analyzing and confronting and aware about relationships of power, particularly mm. inequitable relationships of power that are being used to oppress and manipulate. And, um, and you use that critical sensibility and awareness um, to craft a path forward for yourself, for your community um, that, um, that is responsive to those inequities and injustices mm -hmm. rather than trying to avoid them deny them or dodge them mm -hmm. right and and for me that's why um why why disentangled right the those two forms of hope to illuminate a kind of of hope that is more critical because i think that that is what um students that are vulnerable um that are wounded are the most responsive to yeah uh you're reminding me of uh uh, Tara Brock, who's a psychologist and a meditation teacher, talks about not arguing with reality, right? We have to mm -hmm. see what's real in order to engage in change. We can't just mm -hmm. pretending it's yeah. not there leads to disengagement. And I love that you brought up Cornell West. I heard Cornell West say that at Hamlin University as a junior in college in 1996. Oh and I still end every talk I give around sexual violence prevention with explaining what he described as optimism versus hope and hoping the spiritual leap of faith that we can we can make things better in spite of the evidence i think it's yeah. just it's so important um terry uh, tr try and add on to that yeah i'm i'm madly taking notes while, while he's talking because there's so many things i want to build on but um actually jeffrey the you made me think of tenahasi coates um concept of the beautiful struggle and um, someone I interviewed in my book, Critical Hope, uh, brought this up because he said, you know, sometimes I, I he said, as a black man, sometimes I don't identify with the concept of hope, period. Mm -hmm. um, and and he, he brought up the beautiful struggle because it, it, it means that you're not attached to a specific outcome. Mm -hmm. Instead, you, you recognize that, you know, systemically and societally, often the outcome will not be what you want it to be. So you can't be attached to that outcome. And sometimes he thinks about hope as, as that. And by the way, this um, person I'm talking about who I interviewed is Kari Wendell McClelland, and he's a fantastic musician mm -hmm. um, and a Black liberation activist. And in any case, um, this idea of, of, of working it out together uh, in solidarity um, and recognizing that the process in itself is important. Um, I, I, I really resonated with that concept of the beautiful mm -hmm. struggle. Um, and uh, another thing I wanted to bring up, you, you mentioned facing it. And I think that's a really, uh, like facing that which is difficult. Um, I think that's a, a key point of critical hope. And um, sometimes for me, the reason I think that your article um, helped me start to think about this concept of hope in education was because I was being sold this, I think this, this lie or this false dichotomy between, okay, so you're either need to be like the hopeful, naive person who doesn't have 
you know, isn't very educated to the actual realities that are going around on around us and mm -hmm. systemic racism and climate crisis, et cetera. So if you're hopeful, it, it is e equated with being naive, or you can be um, cynical and you can recognize that these crises we're facing mm -hmm. are truly insurmountable. And, mm -hmm. and um, if often, if you know the depth of, of the, um, difficulties we're facing, there's a lot of things that do seem insurmountable. And it's like, how, how are we going to overcome these? Um, but what I, I think about critical hope metaphorically to some extent, which is as like a dance or a relationship or like a wrestling match between these two lies that we've been sold that have to be separate. And I've, I've been really interested lately in how many parts of ourselves coexist in the same space and mm -hmm. how we hold space for those different parts to have a relationship with one another. And, and so that brings me to another idea about critical hope, which I think it's like a relational practice of community. Um, Sean Wilson is an indigenous scholar who talks about um, uh, relational accountability. And he wrote about it in the context of indigenous methodologies, research methodologies, but I think it can be applied here. Um, and, and he asked the question, how am I being accountable to the relationships um, in my life? And, and that's not just relationships with people, it's relationships with the land, it's relationships with um, the, the topics that we're, that we're looking at, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and then, and also with community, with the people that we're working together with um, to face the brokenness, to face the things that are haunting us, that are, um, that are difficult. So mm -hmm. um, those are a few things that I think about um, with Critical Hope. And I, I just want to say one more the word grappling, when I was writing the book, mm. I kept the word grappling came up over and over and over. And it's like, why is, why is, what is it about this word? And I looked into the etymology, sorry, I looked into the etymology of this word and it was first used um, in 13th century English as like a hook in naval battle. Mm. So it was like mm -hmm. a hook that you would attach to a rope and it would link you to another ship and it would, ha would help you to link up to that or to the shore or to the dock, et cetera. And then in 15th century, it turned into this verb, which is to struggle in close relationship with. Mm. And I really think about critical hope as an always changing relationship that mm -hmm. is not necessarily always hopeful or, or optimistic, but that really engages deeply with, and I would say even hospitably with things like grief and anger mm -hmm. um, at the myriad injustices before us. Mm -hmm. So... Um, yeah, I really think of this word of grappling with hope as being central to the idea of critical hope. Yeah. I love the uh, the both and that you're really bringing, right? It, it's this and this, and we don't have to choose. Um, and situating uh, critical hope is the sort of path keeping me away from toxic positivity on one hand. Oh, things aren't that bad. Think, things are going to be great, right? That That sort of thing. And on the other hand, cynicism. And and both of those just justify disengagement. Yeah, everything's exactly. fine. I'm out. Everything's yeah. terrible. I'm out. Right. And I I love it. Uh, critical hope really brings us to um, agency. Um, mm -hmm. You might not be able to do everything, but you can do something. You can you can wrestle with this. Um, and I've been sort of playing with uh, sort of the equation of critical hope equals an equity lens being able to see possibilities and taking some responsibility. 
Mm -hmm. um, and so I've been play playing with that from both of your work and Michelino Zembalas, who's in uh, South Africa, which I probably didn't say that right, but I'm doing my best. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know he's actually doing a visiting, uh, he's a visiting scholar at UBC right now. Oh, my university. Yeah, I had no idea. I he had just no did. Idea. He just did a talk a couple of weeks ago. I couldn't make it, but um, oh, apparently it was really yeah. interesting. Um, so, Tara, you use the metaphor of um, these sort of two parts of you meeting in a meadow <laughs> in your yeah. book, which is, I think is a, a beautiful metaphor and a, a lot of nature. Uh, and then, Jeff, you talk about roses going in concrete, uh, pulling from a Tupac song. Um, I wonder if you could, Jeff, just say a little bit, um, I, I'd love to hear how that came to be and then how your thinking about Critical Hope has evolved, changed, deepened since then. Because I think it came out in 2014, which, is that right? Or And you probably wrote it a few years before that. So how did that come to be and how has your thinking evolved? So, um <clears throat> You know, when I was teaching, um, there's there's a lot of stories about Pac that I tell. Um, he, you know, Pac had a, a a major influence on on my own life as a kid who grew up in the hip hop era, um, and um, and was always really drawn to Pac um, because of the um, the way in which that metaphor um, that you know was originally a, a poem. Um, come so he he reads that poem on the end at the end of, of a few different tracks but the one that I um, am the most fond of and most familiar with is a song called Dear Mama um, and um, and then ultimately that song becomes or excuse me that that um, that poem becomes a book of poetry and the 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 title of that poem is the title of the book and um one of the stories I tell about when I was teaching high school is that um, I, I used to say that I could, I could leave a crisp $100 bill inside of any Shakespearean text anywhere in my classroom, and it was completely safe. But if I left that Pox book of poetry out, um, it would disappear. Mm -hmm. um, which is to me is great. Like I, I want students to steal books um, <laughs> because it's not like, it's not stealing, right? It's like, I, I trick, it's, you know, it's reverse psychology, right? Um, and, um, and, and, and it was often um, snatched up by the very same students that the system was convinced um, were not interested in literacy. Mm -hmm. And so I started saying, you know, that that it's not that young people aren't interested in literacy. It's that they're not interested in the literacy we're giving them. Um, they're highly literate. And, and the more wounded, the more vulnerable, the more literate, because that those the most vulnerable young people have to be able to read situations that are literally life and death all the time. Right. From the streets um, to um, institutions of power, right, to navigating school, um, etc. Um, and so, um, you know, Paulo Freire talks about, um, he has a, he, the first book I ever got my hands on uh, um, from him is a book called Literacy, Reading the Word in the World. 
um, and understanding that the ability of somebody to read the world um, is a, a really sophisticated kind of literacy that school um, has really never accounted for. Um, so, um, so that that uh, the other Pac story that I tell is is that about twenty years ago now, um, I was invited to New Zealand to do some work um, in in collaboration with the Maori people um, and specifically their educators. Um, and my first, so, you know, like I'm, I'm in East Oakland and if you look at a map of the world, um, Otara, which is just outside of Auckland, um, New Zealand, which is where I went to um, to spend time with, with this Maori community, um, it is literally the other side of the world, mm -hmm. right? So I'm not being hyperbolic here when I say I was on the other side of the world. And my first meeting was with a group of high school Maori youth. And they were sitting in a circle and I walked into the, the room and this one young brother jumps up and he runs up to me, he says, you're from Oakland? And I was like, yeah. And he says, did you know Tupac? <laughs> And I was like, damn, like I'm literally all the way across the world. And the first question out of a young person's mouth is about Pac. Mm -hmm. and, um, and and so I wanted to um, acknowledge that, and, and you know, and, and I think people dismiss Tupac as a thinker um, and, and, and oftentimes as an artist, right? Conveniently. Um, but what is, it, it, what is, it, it, what, it's not hip hop that has given Pac's message the lasting power. Because if, if it was hip hop, then um, young people would still be listening to Biggie and Wu-Tang and KRS-One and, and they're not. I mean, the hip hop heads are, right? But like everyday young people, and I'm talking about like cross-cutting, like you could go to the Lily White suburbs and kids, my sons are 10 and 10 year olds know who Tupac is. Mm. And, and so as a, as a scholar, as an intellectual, like I was really interested in trying to understand at a deeper level, what is it about Pac's message that has been so transcendent? And if you really study Pac's work as literature, what, what you see emergent from his voice is this conversation to the rose growing in concrete, right? To the, the and, and saying to that, um, that young person that um, I see you for your damaged petals. Like I get it. I know what it means to try to grow in concrete. But what I also see you for is your tenacity and your will to reach the sun. And I, when we are talking about hope, like that's, that's what makes me so perpetually and imminently hopeful about our ability to um, move through and beyond the things that are um, oppressing us right now as individuals, as communities, as a society, because, because I'm around young people. And I'm around young people who have every reason to not believe. Um, and, and yet they do, right? They show up with this incredible vitality um, this incredible um, care for one another 
um, that is so um, transcendent of the the kind of adult energy that is constantly getting put on them, mm -hmm. particularly in schools, particularly by power. And um, and I think that that's why Pac's message resonates with them so much, right? Because he doesn't he doesn't deny their damaged pedals, but he doesn't start with their damaged pedals. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess to to put a bow on this, that you know, my mom, who's ninety four, and was just texting me before I got onto this <laughs> Zoom, right? That's how dope my mom is, right? Like ninety four, you all just pounded out texts with emojis. Um, anyway, she, um, she used to, there's a few like lessons that she, I feel like has been teaching me for as far back as I can remember. And one of them is, um, and I remember this one really distinctive time when she was teaching me, I was, uh, I was coming in after basketball practice. I was like 15 or 16 years old. And I was in one of my kind of like, you know, teenage fits of, disgust with the world right and i come in and i like throw my back down and my mom um you know she's like you know 411 right 90 pounds and just like so powerful and she she points at the kitchen table and she says sit down she goes in the kitchen and she takes a glass and she fills it halfway with water and she comes back and she sits down and she puts the glass down between us and she points at it and she says, half full or half empty. And my mom's was good for those like trick questions where there is no <laughs> right answer. And so whatever answer you give, that's the lesson, right? She's mm -hmm. setting you up for. So I just looked back at her. I didn't take the bait. And she says, son, how you choose to answer that question is how you will live your life mm -hmm. because your life will always be both half full and half empty. And if you choose to see your life as half empty, if you choose to see your life for all the things you don't have, you'll never fill your cup. But if you can see your life as half full, if you can see your life for the things that you do have, you will fill your cup, it will overflow, and you can share that with others. Mm. And I think that's precisely Pac's message in that poem, right? That um, so many uh, educators and adults in positions of power look at young people as glasses half empty right they see them for their deficits mm -hmm. and none of us wants to be around people like that we all have people like that in our lives right who who are constantly harping on and focused on the things that we're not doing as well as they think we should be mm -hmm. and we like the human species naturally avoids that interaction Right. But then we have people in our lives that they're not letting us off the hook. Right. Like they 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 know there's things we need to get better at, but that's not where they start. Mm -hmm. Right. They start with the glass half full. They make us feel like we want to be around them. And with those people, we spend extra time. We're mm -hmm. not clock watching. We're not punching the clock. Right. Because they know that not all, that, that they believe in us right they see our capacity and um they're they're not blind to the fact that we still need to grow mm -hmm. and so for me um pac was a, a way to open that that kind of conversation with my students 
-hmm. in a way that um that that really um said i see you right and and we're gonna deal with both parts of the the glass the half full and the half empty mm -hmm. but we're always going to start with the half full because as Pac says like i see you for your tenacity and your will to reach the sun mm -hmm. i love the the public scholarship of tupac uh your yeah. mom's 90 year old wisdom avoiding deficit uh mindset that's that's a lot um well, you? now they have that documentary coming out on is it netflix or so somebody's producing a, like a five-part documentary miniseries on Pac mm -hmm. and 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 his mom yeah but we'll get that in the show notes too um Cara, you've been building on, as you mentioned in the, the beginning, beautifully, uh, Jeff's work and Frary and others on Critical Hope. And you've offered your book, which I'm listening to and, and love, recommend the listen. Um, but you outlined seven principles of Critical Hope in, in that book. Mm -hmm. I, I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about your journey with Critical Hope. Sure. I mean, as I kind of mentioned, it began with feeling like there were I was being forced to choose between two parts of myself that felt quite real. And then all of the, I mean, it's more of a spectrum than two parts of yourself. It's mm -hmm. like, it's like moving between them constantly. Mm -hmm. And um, I think when I found critical hope or the concept of it and started digging in, so we haven't mentioned this, but Paulo Freire um, coined it, coined mm -hmm. the term critical hope. And he talked about, you know, from his perspective, there were several ideas of critical hope that that um, he didn't necessarily expand on it throughout his whole career because he was busy doing a lot of a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But he talked about how it's anchored in practice and historical concreteness. So like the p material realities we're facing now um, have have a history to them. And he also talked about, and, and Jeff has brought this up a few times, he talked about politicity of hope, which is like the characteristic of being political. So hope is highly political. And I think um, I, I think I was drawn to critical hope because it allowed space for that criticality. And um, one of the things I haven't been able to deny in myself is um, some kind of a motivation, a deep motivation in education that comes from moments of great beauty and, and great poignance when I'm in a classroom with students and, and a certain moment happens, or um, even just outside of work when we're, when we're with people we love or we're watching a, a sunset in a beautiful place and how the, that which inspires awe can actually um, motivate us to work for to to continue the hard work of social justice and so i've always seen it and i think adrian marie brown um, does a beautiful job of of explaining how the work of social justice can also be really beautiful and pleasurable and they're not two things that are are opposite one another so um that's kind of why it has been appealing to me um because of that connection um and i also wanted to mention that when i was like I was asked to write this book by North Atlantic Books because they had found an article I'd written in 2016 on critical hope in education. And they said, this could be, this should be a whole book. And, and I said, no, like a couple of times first, because I thought it was a scam. I was, I had just finished, <laughs> I had just finished my PhD and I was like, this doesn't happen to people. I don't know who these people are, but I just ignored their email. And I feel so foolish now because, um, you know, it's such an amazing opportunity. But I also didn't think that 
um, I didn't think I knew how to write a book. I, I, well, I knew, I know that I didn't know how to write a book because you don't know how to do things until you do them. Right. Um, but I also felt very uncomfortable with the idea of, with my positionality in relation to the context of hope. So, um, because I believe that hope is highly political and, and linked with systems of oppression, I thought, I, I don't think we need another white person talking about hopefulness. I, I feel like a privileged white person talking about hope is is kind of like old news to to mm. some extent. And and you know, in, in my book, I, I I get into more depth on how um systems that privilege some and oppress others, and you know, we're built by by a certain group of people in order to benefit a certain group of people. How those systems actually, you know, our brains, um, Jeff was talking about getting into neuroscience. And that I have a whole chapter in my book on neuroscience of critical hope, but our brains are creating from a young age, they're creating predictive models of the world and what to expect from the world based on our experiences. So the more experiences we have, um, that will determine how we build uh, our sense of hopefulness around us. And if, if kids are in a neighborhood or a school in which they are taught that they don't belong or they are not safe or they are not valued. Um, those those kids are like their actual brains are changing to create mm -hmm. predictive models and pathways that expect things to not turn out. And as we know, like um, what we are, what we can imagine um, for possibility is super linked to whether we think it's um, whether we put the effort into doing that thing. Mm -hmm. And yet I'm still fascinated by the fact that neuroscience can't quite explain why and how some of the most hopeful people are actually those who have faced tremendous adversity and poverty. And um, I, th I think it's really interesting. Like we have, we have understandings of certain things, but, but there's a lot that's still a mystery about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, so th those are just a few reflections. Great. And, um, and I think, can, can I just pick up on that a little bit? Um, I'm really glad, Kari, that you um, brought up the neuroscience um, because that that like massively impacted um, and affirmed. It, it's interesting, one of my um, students, now colleagues, um, uh, Tiffany Marie, um, she 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 commented to me that um she's a black woman and she said um you know it's it's so interesting to me like she's she's like steeped in the neuroscience um of you know well-being and mm -hmm. um and her research is like man it's amazing um but uh you know she said it's so interesting to me that the things that um my grandmother and my elders and my ancestors mm -hmm. have been saying about what it means for children to be well in our community um, that were have been ignored by institutions for you know forever um, now is suddenly true because Western science says it's true <laughs> and um, and I think that's it's that's so right on right that like once you say neuroscience and everybody's like oh uh -huh. right but but so much of what schools and educators are struggling with um you know if you don't have access to a neuroscientist go talk to the grandmas right because the, <laughs> the, 
you know, my abuelita, when I walked in the house, like she knew instantly, like that I didn't need, like, go do your homework. I didn't write, I needed some, you know, frijoles con queso, right. Mm -hmm. Or like un abrazo that, and, and, um, how did she know that? Right. There's a wisdom there in, um, in communities that have had to take really concentrate on protecting and taking care of our own and and particularly our most vulnerable which is our children and our elders right that now we have because now we can scan the brain while you're alive mm -hmm. right and we can actually see right biochemically what's happening inside of your body and your neural pathways and i think that that is that is a massive breakthrough for uh, for our field right but it's not new right, right? i don't want to talk about it as new right it's been known but it is still a massive breakthrough for our field that i think education is way behind the learning curve on yeah. the breakthroughs in neuroscience are i had a neuroscientist i did a, a keynote in in new zealand um several years ago for all of their um uh, middle school uh leaders the whole national right middle school leaders and um the other keynote was one of their the the their country's best on neuroscientists and when we were like talking before the the talks began he said to me that he said only one field has had more breakthroughs um than neuroscience in the last 20 years and this was 10 years ago mm -hmm. right and and he held up his phone He's like this. So think about this 10 years ago. Right. And neuroscience is like on pace with that kind of like accelerated knowings. But schools barely are barely touching. Right. right. All that we're learning about the stuff that, that you just said, Kari, and how we're either contributing to those um, pathways. Right. Those what did you call them? Predictive models or we're creating space for them to disrupt them mm -hmm. and start to create the kind of predictive models that the research on hope talks about. Yeah, possibilities. I, I love that yeah. the, the 30 years of neuroscience has really validated and affirmed decades of critical pedagogy, mm -hmm. uh, really affirmed a lot of what Freire and Hooks and others have been talking about, and 3,000-year-old spiritual traditions as well, going back, had that wisdom, and, and the abuelitos too. Um, I want to hear from both of you because we've talked about uh, critical hope as neuroscience, as a practice, as critical pedagogy, as theory, but it's uh, both of you talk about it as a uh, as a practice and you've talked about it here as a practice. So, Kari, maybe we'll begin with you. How do you how do you put this into practice mm. in your life as a as an educator, as a human? Yeah, I, I think the first thing I'll say about that is that positionality matters. Uh, when it when we talk about putting it into practice, who you are, um, you know, everything from race and gender and socioeconomic status and 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 just like the the spaces in which you find yourself um, matter to how you practice it, I think, because uh, it's so intertwined with with our identity. Um, but I would, you know, one of the things I talk about in the section of, of, of my book, is is 
that you practice, there's kind of like three levels of practicing critical hope. The first is practicing your part. So those are just like the small every everyday things that we do in order to participate in society, the things we're responsible to our fellow community members for. So things like voting or just not being a jerk all the like not walking mm -hmm. through the world being a jerk, right? Um, but then there's practicing our art. And um, I had a music teacher in high school and he said, um, he said to me, Mr. Schnellert, <laughs> um, he, uh, by the way, I, I had this memory just flashed into my head. He walked the first time we had class with him. He walked into the room. He was a real rocker and he sang um, Bohemian Rhapsody. He played the piano and sang Bohemian Rhapsody at the top of his lungs. Um, to a, a room full of just reluctant high schoolers and nobody cynical teenagers yeah cynical <laughs> teenagers and very few people clapped but I was thinking in my head like this I think this is going to be good but anyway <laughs> he, he he said to me um Kari um when you you'll know that you're that you have found your art form when you can't help but do that thing Whatever that thing is, it may not be anything that's happening in this music class, but whatever it is that you that feels like breathing to you, it won't feel like practice. It won't feel like you're making yourself do it. It will feel like, like, like as important as 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 um, the essential the essentials of life, and that really stuck with me. Um, and and again, I think it speaks to the impact that teachers can have because mm -hmm. you know if you hold on to things like that your whole life to the extent that I've, you know, written about him in my book. Mm -hmm. Like, it's amazing how, how um, he helped create for me a predictive model about practicing hopefulness, you know, in, in my, in my career and in my work life. Mm -hmm. um, so practicing your part, practicing your art, the thing that you're just really gifted at um, and what you bring to your communities or your, your work world or your families. And then, practicing asking questions of the system. I think sometimes we are prone to, um, you know, considering what a, a specific individual needs to change about what they're doing. If something is going wrong, if, if their situation is, is full of despair, but how can we step back and, and continue asking questions or start asking questions about how is this, how, how might systems be creating this situation of despair? And um, it's not always an easy thing to do because we often attach people's circumstances to their individual, to their individuality. And um, I think again, Jeff, uh, I was rereading your article yesterday and, and, you know, talking about the different types of hope. I think you really got into some of that, like how, how it really is entrenched. It's related to the individual, but it's also related to in huge ways to the mm -hmm. systems in which kids are growing up in and, and adults are working and, and living in. And I loved how you talked about, Kari, about what a wonderful teacher discomfort is, especially to those of us with a lot of privileged identities, right? If you're uncomfortable, now is where the learning happens. What is that telling you? What is that? And I think so many of us avoid discomfort Mm -hmm. or feel like it's bad or I failed. And I love your reframing that discomfort as this is the juice. This is the real stuff. If you can pay attention. Absolutely. And, and with it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Jeff, how do you put this into practice? I know you're, you're, you were a teacher and now you're a faculty member, but you're still in schools. You're still out there in the community. You're still doing things. You've given her father of twins, <laughs> your son. How do you put this in critical hope into practice? Well, I think I'll pick up on that last point about um, 
I, I think a big part of the project of this nation um, is um, we see play out in school every day, which is this idea to sanitize things, mm -hmm. right? That we, um, you know, we want it to be clean. Um, and, and, and the darker the skin of the, the young person, the more commitment is made to controlling the body, right? To sanitizing, um, and um, and and what I often say uh, to educators, and what has has been true throughout my life, uh, is that the meaning is in the mess. Mm -hmm. And so, if you if you avoid the mess, you're you you're not going to find the meaning. Um, and I think that teachers, one of my uh, greatest teachers, Maestro Jerry Teo, who's the founder of the National Compadres Network, um, who does, you know, hope better than anybody that, that, that I've been around. Um, he, he says that wounded children speak the most truth and we resent them for it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the wounded child is, um, they're, they're not, they're not putting the varnish on it anymore. Right. They're, they're, and, and and schools are afraid of that. They're afraid of wounded parents. And, and so we, we, we get rid of them. And, and what we're seeing now and have been seeing is that we don't get rid of them, right? They're coming back. I mean, it's so deep to me that so many of these uh, shootings are happening at schools. Like, why are they going to school? And, and for me, it's because <clears throat> there's um, there's a truth telling there that about where the woundedness is most exemplified in their own memories, right? <clears throat> um, and we're not learning the lesson because we're we're you know to again quoting Cornell West, we're ducking, dodging, and denying the mess. So for me. Um, you know, critical hope is about staying like, I don't want to be messy all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, right? But, um, but never resenting it, never resenting when and 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 I still I struggle with it. Like, you know, like, when my sons get frustrated, or like, annoyed with each other or whatever, like, I want it to stop, you know, mm -hmm. like, I just want them to be the ace homies, best friends all the time. I want them to be happy all the time. And I have to keep reminding myself, no, that the, 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 the fullness of their humanity is when they're like, it's not about not being mad. It's about learning how to, to actually make sense of that. Right. And process that because yeah, that's what it means to be, to be whole and human. Right. Yeah. But we keep telling kids that that's bad. Right. Mm -hmm. that when they're angry, when we want them to stop being angry, Policing right. Instead of emotions. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, the darker the skin, right. The more policing, and the more confrontational the policing is, right? Mm -hmm. The more that it's bad behavior, right? Mm -hmm. And and so um, for me, critical hope is about understanding that, um, you know, that like, like one of the most influential pieces of research that I read in trying to understand how I wanted to talk about hope was from Charles Schneider, um, who recently passed away, but he was a, uh, a, you know, a psychologist who is, is one of the first people, he, he developed the children's hope scale. And he actually did it in, um, he was studying um, 
uh, hospitals, and specifically he was looking at children's um, sections of children's hospitals for kids that were had a terminal diagnosis. And he was really interested in why, why is it that some kids with the same diagnosis will outlive their diagnosis and some kids will um, will pass away before they're even supposed to, right? What What is, because it's the same hospital, it's the same doctors, it's the same meds, right? Um, and what he, what he stumbled upon um, in, in, in researching this was that the kids who were outliving their diagnosis um, consistently had more adult visitors. And so out of, you know, all this research, one of his conclusions was, is that there is, and, and study after study has kind of reproduced this, right? That there is a direct correlation between the number of caring adults that a young person can name in their life mm -hmm. and their measurable hope levels. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, it's like a one-to-one -one ratio. So the kid with one caring adult right, has half the hope level of a kid with two. Mm -hmm. wow. And what I say to teachers is like, that's why you're so important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because we, I don't remember, a, I literally don't remember how I learned how to read. Right. I don't remember any of the mechanics of school, but I can name to this day at 51, the teachers, the very few number of teachers that I knew authentically mm -hmm. cared about me. That's right. And I can name all the teachers <laughs> that I know didn't. <laughs> and, and we now have the, the, the research science to show that that literally saves lives. Mm. Right. So that's... when I think about my responsibility to young people, when it gets messy, like that's where I really yeah. am testing myself, right? Mm -hmm. It's not when it's easy, not when the apple in my eye, right? But when it gets funky, right? I, I really try to stay conscious about this is your moment, Jeff. This is when yeah. we're really going to find out if you could teach or not. Yeah. Right, exactly. I think that's so helpful for our audience who are student affairs professionals who uh, spend their whole lives dealing with the mess, right? With the, with the conduct violation, with the Title IX investigation, with the student who's struggling with mental health, there's students behind in class. And we feel like these are failures when in reality, we can reframe them as just incredible learning opportunities. How do we help these students grow and, and be in that mess? Um, and, and so many of the challenges that, that we're facing, which just seem to get added on and added on. But we are almost out of time. So I just want to move to our last question real quickly and just ask each of you, this is Student Affairs Now, so we always like to end with what's on your mind now? It might be something that's really on your mind as we conclude this conversation or maybe something else that you're just really deeply troubled by. Uh, and uh, and then also, if you want to share where people can connect with you, uh, feel free to do that. But Jeff, what's, what's troubling you now? Oh, um... I think what's what's really troubling me is the um, the missed opportunity that we had in schools coming back from COVID. Um, I felt like there was a real opportunity for our education system writ large, including universities um, and colleges, to to fundamentally repurpose themselves, like to remake themselves, and to have um, 
what I would prefer an ex, uh, exclusive, but, but certainly an explicit commitment as a part of our mission vision to ensure that every young person that comes to us at the end of the day, that they are more well for having spent time with us than when they walked away. And, um, and I feel like what I see in schools and in, in my university um, is that we, we missed that opportunity. We blew right past that window and, and schools and universities, you know, classrooms look very much the same right now as they did pre pandemic. Um, and so I'm part of a, a, a collective project that is um, uh, working directly with schools to um, repurpose themselves and to use something that we developed called the Youth Wellness Index to make that the primary metric of, of their rigor and of their curriculum and of their pedagogy is that, because we know, again, back to the neuroscience, that, that the students that struggle the most in school are often the students that are the least well. And, and we, know, we know what makes people well. And if, if those became metrics and commitments from our education system, that, that because you come here, you will be more well. Like we can design a reading curriculum around that. We can design math. We can design all of these things that we know we want to teach. But if we don't reorient ourselves and the purpose of why we are having young people go to school, then we'll, we'll stay in this, this place where, I mean, like the CDC report about one in three teenage girls is having suicide, one in three is having suicidal ideations. And that's just who's reporting. So yeah. you know it's higher than, right? It, it's, we're, we've got to tell the truth about what's happening to our young people. And schools are the place where I really feel like we have the most opportunity to fundamentally shift and pivot that. And I think young people and families would be so excited to see that move. And so that that's really where my energy is at right now. I, as a as a father of uh, eleven and thirteen year old girls, I would love to see more of that. I would just love to mm -hmm. see more of that. Yeah, Kari, how about you? What are you troubling now? I um I'm gonna add on to this question: What's troubling me, and what's giving me, you know, what's helping me uh, with as a salve to that troublingness? Yeah, great. <laughs> great. Um. But, you know, as someone who teaches, you know, Jeff's been talking a lot about youth and children. And as someone that teaches primarily in adult education and in higher education, um, I think a lot of the problems are the same. And and what we're dealing with is people who are were wounded as, uh, as children and as youth mm -hmm. and are now trying to make sense of it somehow and, and, and move their lives forward. And, um, I just finished a class uh, I, right before this interview. Um, I was talking with um, several of my master's students who are just finishing up their program and they were reflecting on how some of the learnings from the past two years map on to their professional lives and what and what comes next. Um, but, you know, the the problem of isolation and, and tremendous mental health struggles right mm -hmm. now I think a lot of us maybe thought it would end when, maybe not end, but like um, decrease when the pandemic started to calm down a little bit. And I feel that if anything, I have the folks that I know who are in higher education and 
and really in community development and working at the interface with some of our society's most important issues are 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 feeling more despair and hopelessness especially this past winter i can speak uh, locally here than i've ever heard like it it seems to be so many people and and i'll also add that folks that i know who have gone through phd programs this doesn't get talked about either mm-hmm. Most folks that I know who have gone through PhD programs have struggled struggled with suicidal ideation at mm-hmm. some point because the pressure is so big and you're expected to hold it all together and be a leader. And um, I, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of these issues, they, they present differently to different age groups, but they are pervasive. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, shifting to what makes me... Um, hopeful, because I I think that's an important part of critical hope, right? Mm -hmm. The second part of it. And that is, um, you know, seeing some of the people who are becoming teachers right now, I had the I had I was invited to teach a course on Newhawk territory up in Bella Coola, a fairly remote community here in British Columbia, with our NITEP program, which is our indigenous um, teacher education program. And these students are all indigenous, and they are all becoming teachers. And they are going through their Bachelor of Education work. And I had a student in that class say to me that um, it wasn't until grade nine when she when she first had any material from any Indigenous author or any representation mm-hmm. from an Indigenous person in her curriculum or, or school content. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, several of those students also said they never had even one teacher who looked like them. Or, or that they could relate to. And so something that really gives me hope is seeing the incredible resiliency and um, diversity of some of the people who are coming up through the Bachelor of Education programs and mm-hmm. going into education because it's so important that the representation is there. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I wanted to end on that because I, I feel like that's something that that I'm really um, sitting with right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, this has been terrific. I I realized as we're concluding, I've been smiling ear to ear the whole time and not on purpose. I just am so uh, delighted. We we name dropped so many wonderful people. We'll ha- we're going to have a, a massive show notes for linking to so many of these <laughs> great works and uh, Youth Wellness Index and uh, Tanahis Coates and so many more. So thank you both for helping me cultivate my hope and my energy here today. I so appreciate it. Uh, Thanks also to our sponsor today, uh, Simplicity. Simplicity is the global leader in student services technology platforms with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including but not limited to career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success, and accessibility services. To learn more, visit Simplicity or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And a huge shout out to our producer, Nat Ambrosi, who does all the behind the scenes work to make us look and sound good. And if you're listening today and not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com. Scroll to the bottom of the homepage to add your email to our MailChimp list. While you're there, check out our archives. I'm Keith Edwards. Thanks to our fabulous guests today, Jeff and Kari. Thank you both so much. And to everyone who's watching and listening, please make it a great week.